Hi everyone, Joanne just popping in here today to let you know that over the next six weeks we're going to have a series which focuses on really getting to know yourself, learning and understanding your story and helping you create authentically who you want to be going forward. So we have an interview today with a wonderful lady who actually is a storyteller and a story writer. So she shares her story and gets into how you can write your story and, and even rewrite your story, which is what we're encouraging people to do if they're not happy with their current story. The next episode is going to be focusing on empowerment and helping you move to making sure you're a creator of your life. Then we're going to look at endings. When you want to create the life you want to live and lead, there's going to be some things that you have to end and let go of. The next episode after that, it's all going to be about personal branding. Who is it that you want to be and who do you want to be known as? Then we focus on how you can build your community network to help you. And finally, we're going to celebrate the end of the year, focus on what we've achieved this year, and then move forward into the new year, creating the life we want to live. Enjoy this next six weeks. Welcome to Reframe Your Life. I'm Joanne Gibson. And I'm Sandy Reynolds. Together, we bring you our podcast for women who want to live and lead their lives thoughtfully and with intention. On our episodes, we explore diverse topics relevant to all areas of our lives. Welcome to Reframe Your Life. Joanne and I are here today with a very special guest. We first met Patty Hall when we were interviewing Steph Jagger, and we immediately connected with her and knew that we wanted to have her on Reframe Your Life, and we know that you're going to love her story. I'm going to read her bio and then welcome Joanne and Patty. Patty has the world's longest bio, so this could be quite an episode. <laughs> So Patty is a nonfiction writer, a ghost writer, and a memoir writing coach. She is a contributor to many publications, including Huffington Post and Kind Over Matter and a plethora of other publications. She's collaborated with numerous memoir, business, and nonfiction writers. And she works as a writing coach, a ghost writer and editor, and we're going to talk all about writing and editing and memoir with her, which is her specialty. She has a pedigree that I'm not going to get into, but I'm sure it's on her website, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, she is a rare disease advocate and has contributed to uh, writing for several charity organizations. She's a feature blogger writing on topics of relevance to the parents and caregivers of rare disease children, which we're going to talk a little bit about. Patty is the mother of a one child. I can't remember if it's one or two. I think just one child with a rare disease. I will get clarification. Sorry, Patty. She has started a the development of a network called raremoms.com, which will be a place to network moms um, for advocacy and education around all of the issues that parents who have children with rare diseases face. And we're going to just get right into the episode now. I think that gives you enough of a taste of Patty to be as excited as we are to have her here. And I want to welcome Patty and Joanne. Welcome both of you. Hi, thank you. Yeah, nice to to uh, talk to you again, Patty. It's, it's Wonderful. Looking forward to the episode. Oh, you know what I forgot to say? I forgot to say that one of the things that really stood out for me when I first met you was your pen and paper. And ah. you have a love of fountain pens and good paper, which immediately impressed me. So I don't know if that, that should be in your bio. That should be in your bio. It should be. I think it's on my social media bio. And as we speak, I have a, an extraordinarily rare fountain pen in my hand. And I'm writing in a notebook that I uh, found somewhere in Germany and ordered online. So I have a passion for pen and paper. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Just I resonate with that. I want to jump in with a question that's not supposed to be the first question because I'm curious about these fountain pens and things. So okay. did you always know you wanted to be a writer or when did you first know you wanted to be a writer? 
Well, I always was a writer. So a fast story into this and my passion for pen and paper. Let me tell you two fast stories. I'm the daughter of a printer. So from literally the, the only thing I remember is so much pen and ink material around my home and the places where I played because I love to play in my father's shop. I had paper available to me that only those of us with obsessions could understand. So <laughs> I had linen edged, decal edged. I had the finest papers available to me because my father was a printer and had his own print shop. So the passion for paper started early. I had my own stationery when I was a little girl. I have had many editions of stationery and in fact I think the one I'm currently using and uh, which was quite indicative of my uh, future career I'll talk about that someday my father printed for me when I went off to university he made me my own stationery when I was 15 so that's an, an early basis of the passion I also am a both a fast talker and a fast writer when I first used a fountain pen and saw how quickly a fountain pen will move across these fancy papers I'm in love with I realized the only way I was going to get the satisfaction of recording my voice in my head as rapidly as it was coming and get it on paper was to get a fast moving pen. And that's the secret behind fountain pens for me is it goes as fast as my mind does. And then there's, the, of course, this ink and that nib and it can be beautiful and nothing feels better than the heft of a fountain pen in your hand and all of that. But the fact of the matter is it was always about the paper for me. So do you do cursive writing or do you? You'll love this. No, I had, I hate my writing. I have terrible handwriting. <laughs> I was, I was raised with cursive, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't beautiful enough for me. I have tiny wimpy little letters that all close up. Why? Because I love these big fat fountain pen inks. So I have um, a very old friend who was uh, a car sort of a cartographer map person but she also had this lovely drafting script so I taught myself at about 18 how to to do block printing like a draftsman because I was an urban planner at the time and reading drawings so I literally adapted a writing style for myself that I could live with so what I have now is this combination and the page I'm looking at right now has this combination of messed up cursive combined with block printing so it looks a little like an architect who got lazy started out with you know the big block letters that have this kooky style and then I give way to this crappy handwriting it's uh, it's not pretty to look at but it's what I have well and thanks for sharing that because I just I picture people who write with fountain pens as to mm -hmm. be these you know beautiful cursive uh, writers so, so it's my fantasy it's still my fantasy among <laughs> all of my fantasies I can give you the secret here my friends us, uh, us southern Ontario Canadians I can give you the secret but the real telling telltale for me to answer your question about did I always know I wanted to be a writer I was very ill as a child I had scarlet fever rheumatic fever and my mother had to keep me in bed and so how she did it was paper pens probably then those gorgeous pencil crayons you can't get anymore probably made my Lorenzo Canadiana remember those mm -hmm. so what I did was I took the two little books I had I was two or three years old the two little books I had and I tried to copy the illustrations and the stories I was a terrible illustrator I still am but what I did then was I wrote my first story books when I was a little little girl they were probably terrible but I was sick so in my bed as a sick little kid I wrote my first stories then and uh, I don't remember a time I wasn't writing wow. it started then that's so cool. So we're going to talk about writing, but one quick question about printing. How important yep. is it to you, the paper quality and the font that's used in a book? Do you look, do you look at the typeface and all of that when you're looking at books? Guilty. Uh, I, I love them and I savor them, but I don't judge. I literally don't judge a book by what it looks like. However, I recently read a gorgeous publication by a Canadian writer called, I'll drop this here. I don't know her, but I'm going to drop this book here. Gutenberg's Fingerprint by Marilyn Simons. I was at, recently in Kingston and she wrote a book about her own passion about just having a look at books, the paper they were printed on, and the font that they were in. She went back and looked at the history of the typeface. While she was doing that, she hand-produced, with a local printer here in Ontario, she hand-produced a book of her own on an ancient, on an old letterpress. 
So she, in fact, and I understand that a lot of writers are quite driven by what font and what paper and is it a decal edge and all of that. I have never, um, that's never been part of the fantasy of seeing myself in print, but I do savor the beauty of books and covers and these gorgeous flyleaf um, diagrams and things that I see in books. I do savor it. But I'm not, uh, it's a, it gives away a lot about my character. You've gotten to my personality. I'm really not very judgmental. So Wow. Okay. So I'm, I am judgmental because when I see, okay, not in books, not in books, but if I see a document or a website that's in Comic Sans. Yes. Right. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like. You've got to be kidding me. Am I reading okay. a child's thing here or what? Yeah. Well, the book I just dropped, you need to read the book I just dropped because okay. she, she literally goes into how Comic Sans has become the bane of every writer's existence. Right. <laughs> okay. I will read that. Wow. This is great. This is going to be a great podcast. I know. <laughs> so far, we're like... In, well, into our podcast, and we haven't got one of the questions we started. Perhaps this is for one only. <laughs> this is how we roll. So Sandy mentioned from your bio, sorry, what was the framing, around being a rare mother or you are an advocate for rare uh, mothers. Right. So tell us about that. How is, is this a word that you've created? Is this a, is this a thing? Like, tell us about that. You know, I think it would be fair to say, of course, someone may have used the expression rare mom. Um, it has come of my work and a few key people that I have that have discovered my writing and my advocacy role in the rare disease community, which is a small ish world, uh, mm. yet yet affects something like 30 million families in the US and 17 million families in Canada. So rare moms, as I call us, I created this concept because I actually consider us to be a breed of our own. And I add the warrior dads to this, but I can't represent warrior dads. So I've just thrown around rare moms because it only seems reasonable to speak to what I know, which is I knew as a mom what I did. I don't want to speak for how dads react. I have to assume it's, I know it's similar because I know many, but I also didn't want to represent their voice. So what I started realizing was the way I sounded was the way we all sound. You know, my phone has rung numerous times or an email has come in and it is a desperate mom, often a disease related to my son's. My son has an endocrine tumor, a pituitary tumor that leads to a number of diseases, all of which are rare. Uh, the tumor itself is not considered rare, but the causation and the number of diseases that it, uh, it causes are rare. So my phone will ring and it will be a mom who sounds just like me, who sounds just like I did or how I sound still. So I realized that allowing us to talk to each other, broke down all these barriers of, um, I already knew they were a mom, I already knew they had a sick kid, so I didn't try to be something that I wasn't. I didn't try to represent, you know, all caregivers of all sick people. I just wanted us to have a place to go. And although that hasn't evolved yet, I wanted to wait until my book had a place to go in the world so that people could find me. I didn't go looking for other mothers of rare disease children. I wanted them to be able to reach out if they wanted to. So I started Rare Moms as just a website. It's very fledgling. All it is is a place where people can sign up. And I haven't sort of pushed it out into the world. Instead, what I did was I tried to push my writing out into the world in little fits and starts, as it were, to see if people did identify with the message. Because here's the caveat to all of it. When you're in the middle of the most hellish, unthinkable situation you can possibly fathom, the last thing you believe is that anyone can help you or understand. Mm. So it, it everything in its own time, uh, moms who find me are either desperate and have just received the diagnosis or they come to me when they're in what I call the after phase, where they want to figure out how they're going to go on now that their kid is stable, or they have adopted some coping mechanism for their, their rare disease child. Um, this A notion of before and after is really key, and I know we'll get into that, about we become someone different when we confront the unthinkable. And I know that as a mom of a sick kid, I also know that in many other roles in my life. But right now, because of the book that I'm just finished, 
uh, this is the one that's really prescient for me. So rare moms became a term that made sense for me, that didn't make fun of us and didn't elevate us to anything supernatural. It's just what we are. And it sounds a lot better on the tongue than I'm the mother of a rare disease child who has XYZ disease. Mm. So give us a little bit of the background. So you have two sons. I was right I about do. that, right? And yes. one, one of them has a rare disease. Not right. both. Okay. Just tell so us a little two, bit about it. Sure. I have two sons. They are now in their 20s, uh, remarkably enough. Eight years ago, my older son, Aaron, was diagnosed with the very well-known but poorly understood disease, gigantism. Aaron is technically and medically a giant. And I write a great deal online about this notion that giants are something out of folklore, when in fact, this is one of the few folkloric stories that is proven out in medical science. There are a few others. So eight years ago, my then six foot three or four son came to me with sore knees and he had headaches once in a while, but it was the sore knees that were really slowing him down. He was a little belligerent. He hadn't wanted to go to the doctor about anything to do with his random headaches. And I had had to sort of let him lead the charge with not wanting to see the doctor. And I played it down quite a bit. I was a hockey coach for 15 year old boys. I knew what it was like to play down their injuries, but the sore knees and a day visiting his pediatrician proved to be um, diagnostic for a golf ball sized tumor on his pituitary gland in the middle of his head that was secreting growth hormone at 37 times normal rates. He was growing, uh, he was growing an inch every two months at that point, And that was going to continue if left unabated, it would have continued until he was seven and a half feet tall. And that would only have taken three more years had we not caught it just before his 16th birthday. His younger brother is as yet unaffected. Uh, I say as yet uh, because during the course of Aaron's treatment, my oldest son, Aaron, the gene for uh, some genetic anomalies that explain the disease have been discovered, one in the US and one in the UK. Neither of those genetic anomalies explains the disease in my family. So we all consider it to be as yet that it has not shown up elsewhere in the family. There is an adult form of the disease called acromegaly or acromegaly, depending on how you pronounce it, which is rather infamous, and that is how it can occur in adults. And it is a little bit more common, but still an extraordinarily rare disease. So as of now, Aaron, is uh, his treatment has been somewhat successful. He's 24, he's had eight years of treatment, but his uh, brother has never shown genetically to be affected. His brother still, however, is six foot three. So was that growing from birth or do they know? You know, best, the be great question. The best estimate was it was probably growing 12-ish years. I mean, he was wow. only 15, 16 at the time. It's a very, very slow-growing tumor. Uh, it's called an adenoma, pituitary adenoma. They're very slow-growing, which means that treatment can take a long time to show its success. But also, if tumors are discovered early, they can really be nipped in the bud, as it were, because they're, they're so slow-growing. Now, his needn't have gotten to be so large before we discovered it, but the right. fact was none of his symptoms betrayed that the tumor was there until he was almost 16. Mm. So take us back to that day and mm. getting that, if it's not too yeah. painful, or around that day. He was looking to his mom, and uh, everyone was looking to his mom because nobody knew what the hell it was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to have a tall child, and uh, tall boys, in fact, in a number of societies are quite celebrated. But here I had a tall boy that was going to grow and grow to the extreme that it could actually take his life. So this, uh, it very quickly, I took on the roles that were necessary in order to, at the time, I believe, save my child. And then it was to get him medical treatment. And then it was to keep him comfortable and control the impact of the disease. So I went into a mode that I took, and when I say I took on roles, this is how I reframed. So in the before, I would very easily say I was super mom. You know, before the day of the diagnosis, I had all of the delusions and denials that new parents have that disease could not take my child, um, a catastrophe will not happen on my watch. 
And in fact, a catastrophe was happening right under my nose. And I was hands on, in their face, part of their lives. I was really laid back, but I wasn't missing anything. So the day that I took Aaron to the doctor with sore knees, and the doctor asks me this question, she says, um, Patty, does Aaron look like his brother? And I said, I knew exactly what she was doing because I'd had somebody suggest to me that my son had acromegaly once when they saw his picture. There's a stigmatizing, um, a stigmatizing side to the disease that causes a facial, let's say disfigurement. It causes a massing of soft tissue on the face as well as distortion in the bones of the face, just to make it simple, that can change the way a person looks. There's a very distinctive appearance to gigantism and acromegaly in the face because those bones, uh, the growth plates don't fuse. So the face continues to change shape even after we expect maturity has been reached uh, for a child with gigantism. So that had sort of been dropped in my head. I'd looked it up once. I knew what giants, I knew what giants meant. That was really tall. But what I didn't know was that when somebody said, hey, I think your kid has acromegaly, it was actually that she thought she saw something in his face that wasn't quite right, wasn't quite what it used to be when he was a little boy. And that was what triggered for me the day in the doctor's office when she said, hey, mom, does some older son look like younger son? And I said, actually, no. And that was the moment where I realized I couldn't live in denial anymore. That's my before and after. That was when the mantle in me cracked open and I realized that the unthinkable was going to touch my life. And up until then, I thought I had uh, prepared myself for anything that could could uh, come into my my line of fire as a mother. And um, after that, I, I very quickly did the research and became the medical researcher and the PhD. Mm. And mm. I became his sidekick and his cheerleader and the medical advocate and the clinical expert and all of those things I had to in order to get him what he needed. So my reframe started like a leap off a cliff. There was no lovely, gorgeous, gradual evolution where I became something different. Um, I liken it to this, um, the space between the two tectonic plates in Iceland, where I remember walking down this slippery, slidey path um, that is beautifully designed so that you can walk literally between the two sides of the tectonic plate, literally the before and the after were on either side of me. And I remember looking up at these jagged walls thinking, look at them, imperceptibly, they're moving away from one another in the same way that my old life and my new life are. I can't go back and neither can Aaron. So I have to endure this, I have to move forward. And that was what I did and that's all I've ever done. And there was never downtime, right? There was never time to think, oh, how is this affecting me? Or look at me, aren't I coping well? There was just appointment after appointment, after email, after phone call. Somebody saved my child. And that was all I knew. Wow. So you go from the diagnosis and then immediately start down this path of becoming an expert in the disease of your, of your child. What's happening in, your, in your, the rest of your life? Like, <laughs> you know, you have another son. I, you know, mm -hmm. other relationships, what was going That's on That's right. There? Well, I, ironically, and I don't know if irony is even a horrific enough term, but my then husband and I had been negotiating the terms of our divorce at the time. Mm -hmm. We had as amicable a marriage as we did divorce negotiations. Uh, we had been negotiating for a period of time and had agreed since it was amicable. Let's not tell the kids until we kind of figure this out. So sadly, the same week that... Uh, my son's diagnosis came also happened to be the week that I secured a house of my own and we decided that would be the point where we told the children when I had a place where I was moving to and we were going to have to tell the children okay now we have a plan we didn't want to give them news without a plan because that's how we'd always done things sadly it was the same week and there was no delaying it because of course when you buy a piece of real estate you have a closing date so to say things were closing in on me uh, is an understatement so here I was about to become a single mom I was losing my partner I was losing my best friend I was losing the co-parent that I had and we were gonna how are we gonna cope together uh, when we had to literally separate how are we gonna do that and 
um, it was a lot for the children to cope with and it was a lot for us, but all we really did, my then husband and I, uh, we just worried about the kids. And I think that's why we probably didn't do the grieving that we would have, should have, or could have for our divorce, because it all got mixed in with us having a really sick child. My other son was 13 and luckily uh, able to stay a little bit removed from it. His, He was in school. It was winter in Canada. He was busy with sports. And I was able to keep the medical appointments to the daytime. So I would literally run to Toronto, the city 45 minutes away with my older son, who was in grade 10. We would then run back at the end of the day from the hospital, the surgeon, the endocrinologist, the pathologist, the ophthalmologist, all of the specialists. And uh, we'd get the other boy at school and we would try to have a home life. And, And sadly, we were also moving and relocating and life was changing at the same time. Um, I perish the thought of asking them how those months felt for them because I know how they felt for me. Gosh, Patty, the word resilience is just shouting at me and mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Granted, you did not have time to reflect in those moments, absolutely, mm-hmm. and probably for a number of years later. Right. But have you reflected on the word resilience or that time? Yeah, I love the question and, and I'll tell you why resilience hasn't been something I took on in my writing or as a word, because resilience implies, just as you said, that you've had a chance to reflect Mm -hmm. and also that you have moved through. Mm -hmm. And I would say, to be fair, I haven't rebuilt the frame of myself. I have just recently in the rewriting of my manuscript realized what happened to me. And uh, I call it endurance because it felt like a marathon. It Mm -hmm. felt like I was swimming for my life with a kid under each arm. I have used a lot of metaphors for it, and all of them result in me still being at the journey to get back to myself in some way, shape, or form. And that's involving a lot of writing about self-kindness. It's uh, a lot of writing about the neuroscience of trauma and um, the reaction of, um, of encountering constant fear and what that does to a person. Um, now the writing that I do is about what happens to us when we are in this extended, prolonged state of preparedness. And that's how I live. Um, I live, like say, patrolling the perimeter of my son's lives now. Now they're grown men now. So I've been able to back off, which is glorious. But you know, when you have illness in your family, and you have this kind of bond with your kids, and it is a bond. We have this kooky, kooky relationship now, which was forged like <laughs> like prisoners, prisoners who are cellmates, right? We have this relationship where at 16 and 14 or, or 15 and 13, they stopped being just kids, and I stopped mm-hmm. being just mom, and we somehow met in the middle because it was, you know what, guys? Like, the rules don't apply to us anymore, and we redefined what it was like to be a family of three rather than four. We actually became kind of two families of three, even though their father and I maintained a phenomenal close relationship. We had to do that, but we also had to figure out what having hospitals and doctors be such a part of our lives was going to be like. And we had a lot of stigma around my son's disease. We couldn't go anywhere without the staring and the questions. My son is now six foot 11. Um, that's big by anyone's standards. And he's, um, he has a large presence and a big personality to go with it. But he's very unassuming. And uh, but the public aren't, as you know, so anywhere we would go would be to a baseball game, we get the questions. And that became a big part of us sticking together as buddies in armor that we we had to be you know I don't know what you'd want you could use a team metaphor you could use a war metaphor here but we just became guys together and that's what we still are so age aside um I'm still reforming myself as the new me because I gave up living for myself for a long time I'm almost ashamed to admit but it was out of necessity Mm-hmm. I, put, I put them first to my own detriment and I uh, lost my identity for a really long time. So to reframe is literally rebuilding for me now. And that has taken endurance. And I hope one day I can look back, Sandy and say, uh, Sandy and Joanne, Joanne, you actually asked the question. Mm-hmm. I hope I can look back. I can hope I can look back and say, oh, look, at, it was resilience. But I still feel like I'm treading water. I really well, do. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, because that's 
really giving our listeners an insight into uh, a lot of our guests. We talk to them after their journey or after they've found and reframed and reinvented. But you're you're in it. You're still I am. You're still in it, and it's still very. Uh, at the forefront, it could be very raw. It could be very hard. You'll have your positives and your negative days, I'm sure. So sure. you mentioned your manuscript. So we just want to re, uh, launch into that. And just tell us that story of you thought it was a good idea to write a book about what? Your son's? Right. Well, you know, I, w- I was a writer, right? I was a yeah. writer. And this was my, I had already written one book um, following a young, a 40-something man through pancreatic cancer. I had always written about, not, I'd always written nonfiction. This was the life I was choosing. My ex-husband and I had agreed that I, this was going to be my next career uh, after I had written many times for government and many documents for uh, oodles of people and I had begun ghostwriting. So here I was, I had written my first book. Uh, which I have yet to publish, but will be, um, I have rewritten it since. So I rewrite, I write this first book about being in the medical world with someone who needs a caregiver (laughs) 18 months after the fellow I was supporting then through palliative care after he died, my son comes down with this, uh, this diagnosis. And I realized the only thing I can do is write. But I didn't write when Aaron was sick. I had notebooks. I was obsessed with my pens and paper. I was a coordinating nightmare. I was project manager on steroids. So that was the role that I took on then. But I was writing all the time anyway. So when the writing really started for me was when the acute period of Aaron's treatment was over. And I wanted to write about this rare disease. I wanted to build awareness. I had the passion that if there were other children who should be diagnosed early, that I could help do that. Mm -hmm. So I crafted a memoir manuscript in, I would say, three years ago that was a very different story. It was about a kid who gets a rare disease whose life is really messed up by it. It was the stigma, the treatment, the sometimes awful medical um, experiences that we had, the sometimes glorious medical discoveries that were being made at the time of Aaron's treatment. And uh, I wrote that manuscript then. And when I started to put it out in the world and get opinions on that manuscript, what I was hearing from editors, very generous, kind, loving comments from editors was, you know what, like, I'm a mom, I'm a parent, I want to know what you went through, like, please tell us that your kid is okay. And we send you good wishes. But like, did you lose your marbles? Like, did you have to drink a lot of wine? What did you do at night when you were sitting alone in bed? You were newly divorced. You were trying to support yourself. You had a new writing career, a sick kid. Your kids were probably pissed off about the divorce. How, what what did you go through? And so then I wrote the story about uh, a nervous breakdown, succumbing to depression, the loneliness and the mistakes that a woman makes who is on her own and is absolutely deluged with fear at every turn. Um, I started to write the book of what happened to me through the lens of the rare mom that I had become. And that's the manuscript I've written now. And I gave it the title, Our Own Forever, after a story of um, one day when Aaron decided to talk to me about his death. And did I know when he was going to die? And I realized that we didn't even look at forever the same way as other people anymore. And maybe that was what our story was. So there's the relation, the book now highlights my relationship with these phenomenal people that I have in my life who happen to also be my children. And the way we just reframed ourselves as a collective and individually in order to endure because we knew it wasn't going to end. And if it did end, the ending would be something we couldn't live with because it would be that the disease won, that in some way we had lost Aaron. And that hasn't happened. And treatment has been somewhat successful. And, um, and we're all still just as uh, crazy and attached to each other as we used to be, but we're a completely normal mom and two adult guys who've gone off into the world to, uh, to live their lives. So we are cellmates, but sort of, sort of uh, in the short-term history. And that's how the book is now. The book is now a story of me and the roles I took on, including one was, um, one was mental patient. I, um, I succumbed to a terrible depressive episode about six months after Aaron's treatment, because I literally was realizing in a physical and emotional and psychological sense what I'd been through. I collapsed. I collapsed when I knew he couldn't be cured. 
and I couldn't get him cured. And um, that was a long, dark road to come back to learn to live with something that was so monstrous, but it was going to be that house guest that didn't know enough to leave. Mm. And that's how we learned, that's how we decided to live with it. We just redefined what forever meant for us. And we went on, we endured. Wow. Mm. That is uh, a powerful story. And I, I appreciate that you're sharing it here and that you're, you're writing it. At what point did you feel ready to share that? Because I think that's something that a lot of people kind of struggle with. Like when you have a story that says, well, not everyone has a story, but when someone has a story as traumatic as what you've experienced, at what point did you feel like it would be okay for you to share that? Or was that a, a, a process that you had to go through? You know, this is, I think, where my career and my passions probably saved me. I never questioned. Um, because I'm a memoiraholic, as I call myself, mm -hmm. and a memoir coach, this was already the life I chose. So it never occurred to me that I shouldn't try to tell it. I never thought about whether there was an audience for it. I realized I never thought about those things. I just knew I was driven to write this. It was my sixth or seventh book at the time because I've been ghostwriting other books for people uh, for years. And it was finding its way to the surface. And while this is something that I've had as a coach with people I work with when they come to me with their stories, um, it was hilarious to see it happening to me. I would put it aside I'd say, oh, no, no, really, this is crazy. No, enough. You know, Aaron's doing well now. I don't need to write about it anymore. I'd put it aside and it would bubble back. So I've now written the book numerous times. And there are always umpteen drafts to a book. But now I realize that the book I have just written this year, I have rewritten the manuscript for our own forever. This is the book that I was meant to write because this is like my survival story. But, you know, when you're in it and you're you're never quite through it, mm -hmm. You, mm. you just you just give it whatever air it asks for. So I wasn't talking to my girlfriends about it anymore. I was ready to write about it. I wasn't having to speak to a therapist about it anymore because I was getting it on the page. You know, the, we always say, writers always say, oh, every book comes in its own time, but there it was. And I never hesitated to... Uh, at how open or vulnerable I was going to be because this happens to be my career is telling is a nonfiction I'm a nonfiction writer so I never hesitated about that what I did hesitate about was telling my children's story so when I embraced the book as something that was about me and my breakdown and my fuck-ups and my horrific mistakes the times I you know forgot I had a second child and the times when I really should have taken a pill or maybe I could have calmed the hell down um, when I realized that it was about me I no longer had that self-consciousness that I was doing something that might be inappropriate for my kids and here I was a professional writer anyway so it was time to uh, embrace the obvious which was I think this is a book. Mm. Patty, I just I'm um, kind of speechless with your vulnerability here. So thanks for sharing it. Like my mind is going to. I have a, a, a friend in England whose son has a rare disease as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, although we left England a number of years ago, I think they still did get a lot of stares and all that kind of stuff. But now her son's off to college, and, mm. and that worry and that that angst and that anxiety and that, of course, that love and care for your child is still there, but you know you have to kind of let them go. <laughs> and does it hurt her? Yeah. You know, she's she's reached out and said, you know, we were at a cafe the other day and I could just see people staring and whispering. And, you know? mm -hmm. and it's like, gosh, why can't society just be kind and nice? So I think thank you for what you're doing, I mean, through the book but also through our podcast today. Like we we can be so judgmental. You started this podcast by saying you're not yep. judgmental and I think yep. that is that is awesome and perhaps that's come from some of your experiences. But um, I don't know. I want to say thank you for hmm. being so vulnerable because it's not every day someone can kind of say, you know, yeah, I – I had a mental breakdown and yep. but but also you recognize that you didn't do the self-care and you couldn't do the self-care um, during that time. Perhaps writing this memoir is part of that self-care journey now. 
maybe maybe not but uh yeah and i just wanted to say thank you oh for- it's 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 lovely it's <laughs> lovely to have that feedback because i don't know anything different so i don't know anything different other i don't know anything different than having a six foot eleven son and I don't know anything different than to be um, a writer who invites vulnerability on the page professionally. And, you know, I, I had to rise to it, didn't I? I This wasn't a place where I could be, um, you know, say to everyone I work with, okay, let's get vulnerable on the page, everyone, and then not do it myself. Oddly enough, I didn't tell the whole story in earlier versions of the manuscript because I, like everyone else... <laughs> didn't think it would be interesting or like who would want to hear that I had a complete collapse and didn't get out of bed for three months. And uh, so it wasn't the fear of the vulnerable. It was the fear of the audience and the editor of what was going to be important. I knew my kid was fascinating because, you know, giants are mythological and people are obsessed with NBA tall guys and everybody wants to know about the skeleton that was unearthed on an island off of Ireland. And I, I knew all of those things. But I had absolutely no idea that my coping strategies or my inability to cope, for that matter, would be story worthy. And um, it's been it's glorious to find out that it gives comfort to the people who don't think they can survive a rare disease diagnosis or trauma or crisis of any kind. When I say, listen, here's the deal. I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Fight, fight, the flight, fight, flight, and freeze were not options for me. I couldn't, I couldn't fight because it would be a mouse fighting an elephant. I couldn't flee because I couldn't leave my kid alone. I couldn't freeze because any lost time would mean that my kid was going to grow. He was going to be blind. He would have crippling deformities because of the impact of the disease on his bones. His organs could be in crisis or he could die. So I couldn't piss around. You know, I had to get down to business and that meant throwing everything that I needed aside. Uh, It's just due. It was not, I was no superhero. I was no calculated project manager. I was just flailing around trying to save myself from drowning. Hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. A couple of questions have just come up for me. And one of them is around... When people confront someone who has some sort of physical, um, I'm going to use the word abnormality because Mm -hmm. I don't know what normal is, but would not fit into our definition of normal, I guess, in how they look, what, what is the right way to respond? I mean... I think that's very hard for people. And I I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and think that a lot of people want to respond kindly in those situations. They don't want to turn away. They don't want to, you know, but they don't know how to respond. So Mm. what... They're curious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How have people responded that has Mm -hmm. been well received by you or your son or has been a way that you felt honored and you know Mm -hmm. cared for you know it's it's uh glorious to be asked this because the first thing that comes to mind are all the funny stories and I uh and there's a lot of fodder for humor in my book not just because my kids and I are irreverent hilarious (laughs) and act like dirty scumbags who really should be hanging out uh in front of some, we should be having um, tailgate parties, just the three of us, because um, if, if I knew what a tailgate party really was, because I'm Canadian, I don't, but that's what we really should be. But there are times when the three of us just bust a gut at people trying to do the right thing, but they're so impressed with how huge my son is that they kind of, they don't have time to think. So then they're, they're the glorious funny things that people say, like, oh my God, how did you get so tall? And then and there are the irreverent comments that come out of me or my son, like, oh, I was breastfed. (laughs) It used to be and we used to try to make people feel comfortable. And but that wasn't that made them feel worse if we'd say, oh, how about this? So so imagine this scenario. Oh, how'd you get so tall? And you have my 18 year old son, who, by the way, has no facial hair and looks very, very young, very baby faced. He would look back at people originally and say, oh, I have a pituitary tumor that causes the disease called gigantism, and I'm going to grow until they can get rid of my tumor. That's not what people want to hear. No, yeah. But what people want to hear is a story or something lighthearted, because the way they're going like, oh, my God, look how tall you are. They're impressed. They think it's crazy cool. They wonder what the air is like up there. They really genuinely almost always mean 
exactly what falls out of their mouth. Like, look how cool that is. You know, they want to take a selfie with him because like it's, he's, he's a head and shoulders above them. That's Mm. usually what people mean, but I'm not, I am not um, going to say we have not had horrible experiences. We have, and Aaron no longer reacts to them. I still react to them. So here's what I say when I am asked the question about stigma. Um, My son has a physically stigmatizing disease, which is how I phrase it. Whether or not that's completely appropriate, I'm never sure. But this is a real passion for me about diseases that alter children's physical appearance in some way. Um, I, I just seem to be able to inhabit that space because I had a kid who stopped looking, quote unquote, and appearing like other people's children, really, when he was about 14. So I got used to the stares and the questions. So here's what I use as a guide. Do what a six-year-old child would do. Just a walk right up and ask the person, um, what, how'd you get like that? And do it in a way that is not, oh my God, or mm. you're so this, or you're so that. You know, I had a, I have a, a friend who has a, a rare disease child who's in a wheelchair. And I said to her once, you know, what do you want people to do when they want to know why you're in a wheelchair? And she said, well, usually I just tell them, like, I do it because I can always get to classes faster. But I said, what do you really do when people want you to know? And she said, I just want them to ask me. So now what happens, I'll get on elevators with my son at hospitals. Always, the kid knows how to handle the situation. Mm-hmm. The, little, the little kid will go, hey, like, how tall are you? The six-year-old kid will say to my son. And my son will go, I'm 6'11". Like, and he'll, they'll go, like, are you taller than a doorway? And he'll say, yeah, I hit my head on the doorway. And then he'll go, they'll say, like, um, did, are your feet supposed to be that big because you're so tall? The little kids already make the connections. Mm -hmm. So then what my son does is he, you know, squats down and says, yeah, like, think of how odd it would be if my feet were smaller, I might tip over. And a little kid will go, oh, well, that's cool. And off they go. (laughs) Because all they really wanted to do was, first of all, make the human connection because they'd made eye contact with my son and children know to just say hello. So they do. And, you know, we, we try to make people comfortable in those awkward situations where they don't know what to say. So we are a comedy duo, my son and I, and it'll always happen. I'm sort of fair haired and curly, curly haired. And my son is dark haired. um, And his appearance is very, very different than mine. He has dark eyes, dark hair. And most people can't even imagine that he's my child, right? I'm five foot six, he's six foot 11. So we do this thing where we're on elevators or we're in waiting rooms. And we always try really, really hard in medical situations where other children are involved in the early years in particular, because they're terrified and they may also have a pituitary or endocrine disorder. So we'll inevitably go, hey, I'll say, because my son will be sitting down, I'll say, hey, ask him to stand up. And the little kid will be, you know, crying and nervous about going to the doctor. And I'll say, like, check out my son. Make my son stand up. You know, he'll go get you cookies or something. And when my son stands up, people have this awe in their Mm. faces of the questions they want to ask. So what we most often do is we just answer the questions for them. We say, he's 6'11". It's a pituitary tumor. Have you ever heard of gigantism? And I find that friends with children in wheelchairs, friends with children on feeding tubes, friends with children who permanently have some obvious medical ailment, that's what they do too. But my advice is always do what a kid would do and just ask. Go up to the person in the wheelchair and say, I hope I'm not being rude, but like, Mm. I'm really curious about blah, blah, blah. And inevitably you get into a conversation like we just did, Joanne, about you have a rare mom friend whose child has a disease. And you know, it really doesn't matter across, um, across a conversation, what one, what one ailment is, or what one person is, and we're not identifying one another as any different, we're seeing each other as human beings. And that conversation breaks down all the stigma, and takes care of all of the discomfort for both parties. I mean, my son knows he's being stared at, I always say it's a lot better if the person would just talk to him. So I usually, Mm. I usually break the silence and say, Yep, he's really tall. And yes, I really am his mother. (laughs) And and, yeah, we try not to make it worse for people, but that's just how we cope. You know, Um, it's a really difficult scenario. And um, I just want to encourage everybody to address one another. And especially if it's a child, because a child in a wheelchair is going to be more than happy to talk to you about why they're they're in the wheelchair. You know, they know that you're staring at their wheelchair. We all look, I stare too. 
I, I know that I would stare if someone seven feet tall walked through uh, an office door. But when my son walks through my front door, I don't look twice at the fact that he ducks, tries not to hit his head. And I often laugh when he does. So you get past it in your own life. Mm-hmm. But like everybody else, I stare too, guys. I still stare because I immediately want to know what the diagnosis of the child is. So I'm just as bad as everyone else. Mm. Yeah, wow. It is It is good advice. Um, because I think you're right. And thanks for that, Sandy. I think most people's intentions are, are positive. But yes, as you said, the, every now and then, they're not so kind. So yeah, well, there are um, a lot of selfies floating around on cell phones out there in the uh, world of people who back themselves up against my son on the yeah. subway, um, oh. trying to get a picture of themselves. But you know what, it's, uh, he, it, he says he's not bothered by it anymore. It's just become a way of life. I'm not always convinced. And I'm always right. saddened. I'm saddened by it. But uh, you know, we make jokes about it and we move on. Yeah. I want to just go back to you and you you were writing your m- memoir or the first book, I guess, about your son's disease and you wanted to try and help people who may be in a similar situation. And you kind of mentioned that you, when you got the feedback that they really wanted to hear about you and how you coped with it, you, you mentioned that you left things out because you didn't think that people would want to hear it. It wasn't necessarily about your own vulnerability. If we have anyone who's been curious about writing their story or writing their memoir, like, are there any, like, guiding hints and tips on what makes a good story? I mean, you're a memoir coach and mm-hmm. you didn't even think people would want to hear, right. you know, you being in depression and stuff. But absolutely, that precisely is what people want to hear to see how you coped or not coped. Right. So um, what makes a good memoir? Like a, a true story makes a good memoir. And it's, uh, and you know, lots of things get left out. So, and there's nothing to say that when this goes to print, that my depression wouldn't be cut down to two pages, because of course, you went through depression might be the conclusion of the editor. But when people come to me, and they're like, you know, they have the the one liners, they tell themselves, uh, you know, why would anyone want to hear my story? There's nothing special about me. Oh, so I, you know, went through a divorce, had some abuse in my background, uh, and went on to run a, you know, a successful software company. No big deal. Here's the thing about memoir is we are always looking for something to relate to that gives us comfort Mm. as we pass through the world. The reason that people are listening to the podcast and connecting with the two of you is because they relate to you in a way you either give them comfort that they're okay and they're not alone. They may look to you and say, oh, she's gone through some stuff and she's okay. They may look at you and say, oh my gosh, that's such a good idea. I can really move forward if I try and embrace that idea. Those are the things that we take from memoir. We either see ourselves in the story or we relate to something in the story that can inspire us to move forward knowing that we are not alone, but that we are fully capable of enduring anything that we confront. I'm not a person who ascribes to the notion that memoir is always about trauma or a horrific story or a problematic story. I think that memoir is about a life path that anyone else can see themselves in. And that mirror is what memoir does for us. We we have always told stories. We have always told stories around campfires and fires of other kinds. We tell one another where we've come from and where we're moving to because we all want to know that on the human journey we're not doing it alone. It's the most natural thing in the world. A good memoir is a concisely told story about a period in someone's life that another person can wrap their mind around in 250 pages. Because that's wow. really all, that's really what you have to share in one book, one story at a time. And uh, it doesn't have to be linear and it doesn't have to be uh, a surprise. It's amazing to me that the most commonplace uh, or what we would judge to be the most commonplace of tales is still a story that makes us go, wow. Because we don't look at ourselves through the lens of storytelling. And if we look at our own lives, I do believe we all have a story. Uh, Sometimes it takes some pulling. And that's what I do as a coach. I sometimes have to pull the story from people. uh, And I maybe could be criticized for seeing too much story in some people that don't think they have one. But (laughs) I I always err on on, on the side of, hey, that's great. I've never been through that. Or how inspirational... It is that people get through these long lives and have accomplished so very much. 
That is just the most amazing definition and explanation of memoir. Thank you so much, Patty. I just, I love memoirs, not like as, you know, I wouldn't put myself in the same category as you in this at all. I do enjoy memoirs and it just made sense to me when you said that, that it's because it's that ability to read someone's story and feel connected in our humanity with that Mm -hmm. story in some way. So I really appreciate that. You are a, I follow you on Instagram and you read a lot, (laughs) like mind blowing how many, and memoirs, how just like, just share how much you read. I read at least two full books a week, typically more. Uh, I listen to one on audio at least once a week. And I mean, I I am a memoiraholic, but I also am, I consider it my work to read that much. I consider it required for me to fill the tank back up when I am so steadily emptying it. So reading to me is what writers must do. And part of it can be research. I mean, if I told you, I right now have 35 books out of the library, and I will get to them for their own purpose. I'll say, though, if it's a memoir, I read it cover to cover. If it's something else, I have to admit, I don't often stay with it the whole way through. I'm not, um, I, I won't read anything. Having said that, I love to have recommendations made. And I love to have books celebrated in my face, like you've got to read this, you have to read this. <laughs> and one of the things I'm doing, actually, is I'm starting this celebratory newsletter called the Memoiraholic for people because I know so so many memoir writers. And some of my best friends are people whose books I absolutely adored and I just reached out on, on social media and said, I just read your book, it is dynamite. So I did this little sort of Proust questionnaire style um, interview with some of my memoir friends, and I'm going to publish the written responses because um, I don't think we talk to authors enough. And that's it for me with all this reading I do. I want to know the authors. I want to know the writers. And I do truly think that's what nonfiction has over fiction. I think we actually want to meet the authors in nonfiction. Um, in some way, we think that they're sharing a piece of themselves, of course, in their book. And that's why I read so much, because I, I meet three or four new people every week when I read a new memoir or more nonfiction. So I'm guilty of making friends that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I love that. And like Sandy, I appreciate the way you described it and related it to the podcast because mm-hmm. I've thought of that too. Oh, I don't have a story to tell. Right. You know, who would want to listen to my story? Sure. Uh, and, and I'd love and to talk about that in particular because I bet you do hear from your listeners. And I know that right now there's someone out there, Joanne, who exactly just said yes when you said the words, I, I'm not sure I have a story. And what I sometimes make myself do is, just to test that, I write two or three paragraphs that might be a preface for a book. This is an exercise I do in a workshop, and I encourage you guys to use this and for your listeners to use it. If I ask you the question, what's your story? What would you say to me? So we're having coffee. We're sitting at Starbucks. Sorry for the product plug. Uh, we're sitting at we're again, <laughs> we're sitting at uh, Timothy's or Second Cup. There we go. Uh, or Tim Hortons. And I say to you, like, what's your story? We've just met for the first time. Those two or three paragraphs that come out of you after that, you already have the essence of a book. So mm. I test I test myself as a writer with that. And in fact, today, knowing I was going to speak to you, I said, have I got three paragraphs somewhere that would answer that question? If one of you said to me, oh, I don't, how'd you know you had a story? I realized that I, I could go hunting and I really could distill that down. And if I did find three or four paragraphs, that would be my sort of my, what do we call that? My rebuttal to myself. If I ever said, there's no point in writing this book. So mm. I would say to you, instead of you saying to yourself, um, I don't really think I have a story anyone would be interested in, I would do the reframe of the mindset on that and say, <laughs> how do you know? How do you know that that's true? You don't know that that's true. Yeah, I love that. Because at the same time I say I don't think I have one, I, I have had a journey that I think I've had to work through and I've had to frame and reframe that may be helpful for people as well. So, so yeah, but when you related it to podcasts, Sandy knows this. I have this, I've been told when I was young that I, I'm not a good writer so many times that I just have this thing about my writing, right, mm-hmm. which is 
totally unrealistic and we just had a conversation well, about it before we came on. It is unrealistic. And so, so let me say it to you. I know that um, you're uh, an incredible athlete. So let me say it to you. If I said to you, um, you can't do that. What if, what if you can't do that 15K hike? You would say what? I can. <laughs> okay. I'll train. Ha- there, you, there you go. That's what yeah. you do. So writing is a muscle. And I, I'm, writing is a muscle. And if you have help, whether that's a coach or an editor or somebody who loves you enough to read your stuff 500 times, please don't choose a family member is my first advice. <laughs> but no, I'll, be writing, I'll be writing about them. I can't choose them. <laughs> <laughs> well put, Joanne. So true. Uh, so, no, if you're going to include your family, definitely don't have them reading your drafts. But it's a muscle. So, and I love, can I refer to your podcast again, when my good friend Sia Sunrise person was on with you, I heard Sia say, oh my God, if you saw my early drafts, I would be so ashamed. Okay. So Sia is a best-selling author with a major Canadian (laughs) uh, publisher and agent. And she said to you, I would die if you saw my early writing. Doesn't that just tell you? And yeah. she, didn't, she didn't need to write that in a book, girls. She just needed to say to you that every single one of us started off somewhere going, whoa. And let me tell you, this is why I don't write fiction. Uh, because my young adult fiction, which is how I started writing, it does not belong out there in the world. <laughs> but my nonfiction, I kind of have gotten to the point after, at my ripe old age of whatever, uh, it was my 20 years I've been working on nonfiction. I'm finally to the point where I'm pretty comfortable that it's improved. But fiction, maybe not so much. So writing, don't be intimidated by the writing. Because if you can talk, you can write. <laughs> so good. And, and Joanne boy, can I talk. Can talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think Sandy jumped in and said that. Okay. I, I love this. And we've been going on. So, Sandy, I think we need to put a stake in the ground here and say we're going to call this uh, episode one. one with Patty. <laughs> yes. Or volume one or version one or whatever. And we've never done this before, Patty. We've always said, oh, yeah, we'll have to have you on again. But I think in the title we need to call this volume one and we need to circle back once your memoir is published and Mm -hmm. get more into this writing memoirs and that whole journey about that because we haven't even been able to touch on that yet. Right, and the whole notion of my before and my after, which is the story, and I'd love to read a little chunk for your listeners, which is about that test that you have as a memoir writer or as a writer of any kind, my answer to the question, is there really a point in my doing this? I loved that for your podcast, I sat down and I had to prove it to myself that I wrote the book with because I really felt like I had to. And when you get to that point, you have no choice but to write it. And everyone gets to the point where they're so compelled to write their story that they have to do it. It's no longer a choice. And that's something I'd love to talk to the podcast community about through you guys, is that if you feel like you have to, it just means that you should. So tell your story. Well, I, I'm looking forward to that because I have that desire to write my story and it keeps growing it doesn't go away so I would love to have that conversation in part two and we will schedule that as soon as we get off when we're going to do that and um, also I think we should let our listeners know now if they can't wait for that and they want to reach out to you and talk about how to get coaching around writing a memoir how did they mm-hmm. find how do they find you it's it's a cinch so all across the web i am patty m hall patty m hall.com and i always have a funny story the m does not mean memoir mm-hmm. but one of, <laughs> one, of, one of my students says is the m for memoir a holic and i thought that's brilliant oh, branding such good yes. thing. So I'm Patty with an M because Patty Hall is a country singer who looks a lot like me. So she and I had to get together and rebrand. So I just look up Patty M. Hall on my website. They can they can um, sign up to hear more from me. They can send me an email. I have an online writing school. I give classes and talks uh, across Canada. I am so easy 
to find, just send me an email that says, I really want to write my story, but I don't know what to do. I absolutely love hearing from people who say, can you help me? Where should I start? I, uh, I have e-workbooks and I, I give the classes online through the school, but more than anything, I just love to encourage people to do this. And the first thing I would say is go and read some memoir. Go to the biography, autobiography section of the library or the bookstore and grab something that jumps off the, the, the shelf at you. And then write me and say, okay, so I read Eat, Pray, Love. Okay, I'm not Elizabeth Gilbert, but I think I have a book in me. Start there. <laughs> you know, none of us, by the way, is Liz Gilbert. She is my absolute uh, favorite writer, like so many others. Uh, they just have to reach out to Patty M. Hall, and they'll find me on social media or anywhere else. I would love to talk to people. That's great, Patty. I have really enjoyed this uh, conversation. You've helped me reframe writing for a start. So we will. We're going to get off this call and we're going to book another another session in. All right. Thank you so much, Patty. This has been amazing. Stay tuned, guys. We will let you know when the next episode is coming out. But, yeah, reach out to Patty and follow, follow her because her posts are pretty funny too. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Hi, Life Reframers. Did you enjoy our episode today? If so, please leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, check us out on all our social media avenues via reframeyourlife.ca.